Hello. 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 And welcome to Mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who've decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Each day, together, together, we shine a light on the we truth. Shine a light on the we truth. focus on the things that unite us. We pull each other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared humanity. humanity. Episode 21, Kristen Mink, What Unity Is and What It Isn't. Activist Kristen Mink first came on our show in 2017 to tell the story of how she'd fought back against a hate crime directed toward immigrants in her community. Since then, she's become known as the woman who confronted former EPA chief Scott Pruitt in a restaurant and asked him to resign in a video that went viral and may well have contributed to a subsequent ouster. And as a co-founder of Lights for Liberty, an organization created to fight the Trump administration's immigrant detention camps. She returned to our studio, bringing with her her little baby, Nova, to talk about her work as an activist, how her eventual split with Lights for Liberty exemplifies some of the challenges facing progressives in 2020, and her advice for people looking to combine political involvement in an election year with parenthood. Thanks for coming. Yes, thank you so much for having me. What's your background and how did you get into activism? I know you've been here before. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always kind of felt compelled to do, do something, you know, when there's issues that come up in the world and in my community. Things ramped up a lot when Trump started campaigning. And then, of course, with the election, like so many of us, um, became more activated than we were before. You know, I now feel like I should have been this activated before, but better late than never. I think the first thing that I came here to talk about was um, when there, there was a hate crime at a church uh, in my community. Their banner had been defaced with anti-immigrant slurs. So we made uh, a new banner that said, I think, you know, immigrants are welcome here. You know, wanted to send a message that what had happened to that church did not represent our community. And instead, the community coming together to replace that sign, um, that's really what our community stands for. And then how did the Pruitt thing, how did, how yeah. did that happen? And uh, just quickly recap for us, what was so bad about Pruitt? What made you be like, this is someone I really need to take on? Why him? Scott Pruitt was chosen for the job because he's been trying to dismantle the EPA from outside the EPA for years. He's actually sued the EPA over uh, its attempts to you know, regulate and, and uh, protect the environment and all that kind of thing. Then he was made the EPA administrator and he became very efficient at uh, deregulating. They've been getting rid of scientists and science in general, and they've been rolling back protections on our air, our water, our food, you know, you name it, they're making it worse. And at the same time, he's been using hundreds of thousands of dollars on ridiculous personal expenses. So the real reason that I am upset at him is more for what he's doing to the environment and for the future. What made him such an easy target is the corruption. The Pruitt thing was totally unplanned. Uh, I was in a restaurant with my family and uh, my husband leaned over and was like, I think that's Scott Pruitt. And I was like, oh, my God, Scott Pruitt, because he's impossible to track down. You know, he'll, he doesn't take meetings. He doesn't do any kind of press. I had my now three-year-old with me and I just started scribbling down some notes of, you know, what I might want to say. 
this is not like my wheelhouse or anything, confronting people in restaurants. And I was there with my kid and my family and everything, but uh, I just felt like it was an opportunity that had to be taken. So I pulled in my husband to take a video because that's what one does. Uh, and I went up to Scott and I confirmed that it was him. And he at first seemed a little like, oh, well, yes, you know, it is me. Uh, but then I told him that he should resign because of everything that he's doing to the environment and, um, you know, all the money that he's mishandling and, and that sort of thing. And then we posted it and it really went viral. And I spent the next few days going from TV show to TV show and interview to interview. It was really crazy. Uh, and then he uh, resigned as I had asked him to do, and as many people had been asking him to do for a long time. So then that kind of extended the craziness of that time. And then they appointed a new EPA administrator who's just as bad, maybe worse. Did anything come out of that? Did that affect your mission, the things you wanted to do afterwards? What came next for you? So I had already been like an activist before that. I would just gotten arrested at a protest a week before. Um, over family separation. What it did was it gave me a, a little bit of a bigger platform because, you know, my social media presence grew. That allows me to amplify things a lot more effectively. So I try to use that to amplify the work that other organizations are doing, participate in actions with them and amplify those things. So how did you get involved with Lights for Liberty? So that started because I had been walking the halls of Congress and talking to Congress people about impeachment and about the camps. The urgency in talking about the camps really ramped up when I was alerted to a Twitter thread that was posted on one of the co-founders' feeds, and it was information from a Flores lawyer, so from a lawyer who works as a children's advocate at the border under the Flores Agreement. And it was just appalling. Getting the details from somebody on the inside was shocking. And then also she understood that... Um, there was an effort by the government to move some of these kids and then other, you know, immigrants into military facilities. They're already holding other facilities empty, residential facilities. They have more space that's safer and, and healthier. I don't agree that they should be keeping people in detention at all, but they are purposefully um, holding people in these short-term facilities, and, and it looks like getting ready to move them onto military space. And the timeline on that is pretty urgent, because once that happens, we lose all access to them. They're not going to have lawyers who can come in, no press access, no Congress people need to be admitted. We can't even do like flyovers to see what's going on. So this is really how concentration camps turn into death camps. With that in mind, I started reading this Twitter thread in various Congress people's offices. And I went into Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's office because I wanted her help in kind of making the camps a big public thing, which they were not at the time. You know, nobody gets press like she does. Nobody gets social media attention like she does. So i got a meeting with uh, the legislative director there. I was telling her about uh, what this lawyer was reporting, and she was really horrified by it. She stayed after hours so that I could put her in phone communication with that lawyer, and they got that information to Alexandria that night, along with different people and things to verify what was going on. That all happened pretty quickly. That was on a Friday. On Monday, she was on Instagram Live and said the camps were concentration camps, and things really blew up. And um, in that time period, we started Lights for Liberty. So I was contacted by the person who had originally posted that Twitter thread um, to say, let's do something big. And so that's how we got started. It was set up to be a distributed action, a one-day event happening across the U.S. So we had five kind of anchor locations that we were going to run their vigils to end the, the concentration camps. So the idea being speakers, impacted people speaking, and then, you know, candle vigils. And we invited 
anyone, anywhere to organize their own. Whatever you're able to do, light a candle in your window. You know, we wanted to make it possible for everyone anywhere to participate. And so it ended up being over 800 registered vigils uh, across the U.S. and on, I don't know, maybe six continents or so, I want to say, worldwide. It was huge for a distributed action pulled together in three weeks. Right. And so what's happened since then with the organization? Since then, I have parted ways with them. There were four other co-founders, and they have decided to turn Lights for Liberty into a nonprofit. And what do you think is problematic about that? So there were some problems in the lead-up to the event around diversity and lack thereof. I was the only person of color of the five of us. I didn't realize that when I came on because we were being connected like by chat and by phone. And because the person who had reached out to me, the person who had posted that initial thread that I had read, she has a pretty large platform and she uses it to speak about things like let women of color lead. So I just assumed that I was not the only person of color. And I was also noticing things like, you know, when I suggested that we should not be having a bunch of white celebrities speak at these events, events that I was told, well, you know, it's okay to just have, you know, a big white celebrity as a draw and then surround them with impacted people and people of color, which is offensive on numerous levels. There are plenty, of course, of people of color who would be big draws. And then, you know, as I suggesting that we bring in impacted people and other people of color into like our leadership circle, then I was getting a lot of pushback about that. Okay. This is going to sound like a stupid question, but for, for people who don't know, what is the problem with not having people of color in the decision-making part of an organization like Lights for Liberty? Yeah. So first is just it's not ethical to create a situation in which people of color are being pushed out because people of color deserve to be in places as much as white people do. There's also the issue of the fact that, right, this is an organization ostensibly set up to help people of color, right? That's who's suffering the most under Trump's immigration policies. And so the idea that white people know better how to help people of color than people of color do is very problematic. And then representation matters, right? You need women in a workplace to be able to make sure that the product or service that you're outputting serves women. It's the same thing with people of color. Having a seat at the table, having somebody who, because of their life experience, they're going to have ideas that are different from somebody else with different life experiences. They're going to have different priorities, potentially, um, and different value structures, even when we have the same end goals, just because it's very different to grow up as a white person in America than it is to grow up as a person of color. So the best way to make sure that you're taking all those things into account are to actually have people of color at the table participating in the decision making. So things like we had a list of demands that was put together from and with the help of different immigration organizations. But when they were put out, which was just, I think, like two days before the event itself, they were put out only in English which is ridiculous. This is an immigration issue. And I think that that would not have happened if you had somebody in the room who's used to being around an impacted person who speaks Spanish. And it was just something that apparently had not occurred to or not been made a priority by the others. But there are so many examples of this type of thing happening in many different organizations, and you can see the results in the decisions that come out of those. So... I was realizing that there were problems in the lead up to the event and I considered quitting. I sent an email that threatened to quit if several conditions weren't met, including diversifying our leadership. They said that they were in agreement with everything I said. Uh, they started doing some of those things. What ended up happening is that those people who they brought onto the you know, national committee, quote unquote, they ended up kind of as an advisory board of sorts that didn't really do anything. But in terms of the day to day decision making and the strategic decision making, they were not a part of that. 
This all happened in a very short period of time. So I felt like there were a lot of great organizations involved at the different sites. I didn't want to drop out and kind of drop the ball on them. Anyway, I ended up sticking it out and figuring, well, July 12th, which was the date of the event, you know, will be will be done. And then a couple of days later, I saw on Twitter that they announced that they were becoming a nonprofit. And obviously, they'd done that without talking to me. I was clearly not a part of that. So that's when I wrote and, and published on Medium a piece kind of explaining what had happened and why I was not involved anymore. It was an opportunity for me to participate in the conversation around how this is really a problem, people of color and especially women of color, not being listened to and being pushed out of leadership positions. And what was the response to to the stuff that you wrote? I have gotten a lot of responses from people that this has happened to saying thank you for speaking out, which just really reinforces how much more we need to be talking about this and how much more accountability there needs to be so this can stop happening. I've also seen people who mostly, from what I can tell on Facebook, appear to be white, who are saying things like that I should have kept quiet about this, that I'm, quote unquote, we're eating our own, in which case I would ask, who are our own in that situation? Because during the time that people of color, including myself, were being uh, not listened to, when other impacted people were not being brought on to leadership, there was nobody who was saying, oh, you're eating your own at that time. And then there's also, of course, an assumption. If you're saying, oh, you're eating your own, this isn't good for the movement, there, an implicit suggestion that letting white people lead, just kind of letting them do it, that that's what's best for the movement. And I would strongly disagree with that, both philosophically and logistically. But that is the crux of what a lot of people are saying, right? Because we're talking about how unity is a big part of going into 2020. Mm -hmm. So when people come to you with that, what is unity about then? How would you suggest that we get there if we don't want to infight, but at the same time, there are issues that are so important mm-hmm. that they can't go unaddressed? Well, let me, let me start with what unity is not. Unity is not silencing marginalized groups and having them stop complaining. That's not unity. So true unity would be everybody has an equal seat at the table, right? Everybody's voice is able to be heard. So, you know, telling me not to speak out about this, that's not encouraging unity. That's encouraging white supremacy. I think that we can get to a place of unity, and it takes everybody listening, including the people who have the power. When we have the opportunity, like I had the opportunity to speak out, I think we need to do that. But I think that there needs to be a lot of other people speaking out also when they see it happening to somebody else in their organization or in their space. I have an idea of why I think this is particularly a problem for white women, because we are taught so much that we need to be strong. We need to push our issues strongly. Don't let people correct you and don't let people say no to you because that's what we're used to. Mm -hmm. We're so used to being told that we're wrong. We learn to sort of plow through it, not listen to the criticism. And I think that makes us unable to realize what we're doing Mm -hmm. wrong sometimes. That's a really interesting point, that kind of misogyny <laughs> has put us in a in a place where now has set up or helped to set up this unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. I mean, what do you, do you think that's possible? I mean, I mean, that makes that's... that makes I think that makes sense. Certainly, like we're all women, you know, we're all being given this message now, which is a good message of stand up for what you believe in, you know, don't back down. And when you combine that with, you know, racial dynamics, which are difficult, that's certainly not helping the situation because this is a case where it's not about giving up power that you should have. It's about giving up power that you shouldn't have. It's about divesting power that you shouldn't have and and sharing space. And that's a very different message. Right. And add to that the fact that nobody likes to be to feel like they're being criticized. Yes, there's definitely a fragility issue happening there. I happen to think that it's not really anything to feel sensitive about. 
It's a fact of life that in the U.S. we have a racist society. It has racist roots, and we have not eradicated that. That's very apparent now, right? And so people of color are raised having to think and talk about race in order to move safely through the world. White people have the privilege of not having to do that. So a lot of white parents do not raise their kids to think and talk actively about race and even, you know, teach their kids that it's rude to acknowledge race. You know, some people are still trying to be colorblind. Don't do that. That's not a thing. But what you end up with is a lot of white adults who are not practiced at talking about race. When it comes up, they have a lot of difficulty and they get defensive. And it's like math or poetry or anything else where the more you do it, the better you are at it. You learn what are the rules that make things like socially acceptable, what are best practices. Those are all things that are consciously learned. They're not like innate in a person. So if you haven't learned those things, it's not surprising that you're bad at having those conversations. And that's where white fragility comes from. And the way you get past that is by educating yourself. You do a lot of reading. You do a lot of listening. You do a lot of stepping back and and trying to temper your own uh, defensiveness. And then you get better at it. On the other hand, a lot of people of color say, it's not my responsibility to educate white people about their white privilege. White people should be doing that, mm-hmm. right? White people need to be doing their part. When people of color are not able to reach white people, then having a white person there to be a voice that those other white people are willing to listen to, like that's important. And having white people being willing to step up in moments where their privilege is protecting them in a way that it's not protecting people of color, that's really important too. At the same time, when you have a space that has people of color who are safe and able and wanting to speak up, it's important to make sure you're making that space inviting for them to be the lead voices on an issue. So, you know, it's a balance and and I think there's no perfect answer. But if we're listening and we're checking our privilege uh, and all the time you're monitoring the situation you're in to ask yourself if you're creating a space for those voices and then to support them. What do you think constructively we can do in these situations where We have people with, on some level, the same agenda, on some level, different agendas. I mean, this is not a Lights for Liberty problem. This is more a Democratic Party problem. But people who are moderates, dealing with progressives who don't want to give up the most important parts of their agenda, but yet want to keep the moderates in the tent. What do you think is the way to forge through that? I mean, I think while we're leading up to the primaries, everybody just gets to do their own thing. We're going to fight for who we think is the best candidate, and, like, that's the American way. What I I do not think that we should fall into the trap of voting in the primaries for, quote-unquote, electability, because, you know, that's a code word for people who have been elected before, which has been mostly white men. So that's not really a fair standard to apply when we have lots of women and people of color in, in the field, which is great. Everybody should make the choice that they feel is best for them and should push for that person, and the unity is going to come in the lead up to the general. Whoever that is... We all need to be 110% behind that person. We need to put our whatever disappointments we might have aside. We're going to need to be able to come together. That's what didn't happen in the last election. Now, we, of course, had a lot of other forces working against us, but that was a big one, and Russia was able to play on that. And we need to be ready to present a united front and say, we are all going to the polls and we're all bringing friends to the polls, whoever that candidate is, because the most important thing is defeating Trump. For this part of the process where we are hashing it out, where you're figuring out who's going to be best, what's going to be best, how do we pursue it, what would you be your suggestions for how to do this constructively and what are things that we should be trying not to do? I mean, I think that the accusations of eating our own and, and like stop criticizing candidates, that's the same thing as saying, as talking about electability. Because if we don't criticize people's platforms and don't criticize candidates, then we're saying we're going to default to the status quo. And that's not how we should be picking candidates. So I think it's important to look at these candidates and their policies with a critical eye and be able to talk about them. 
I mean, name-calling is never going to be productive or helpful. And that's obviously going to stand in the way when it comes to uniting after the primaries, because that, that's getting people riled up emotionally. I think we need to be able to have policy debates, and those need to be productive. But stooping to, you know, what Trump does is not what we want to see, not what we want to do, not helpful. Right. So fitting motherhood into this, because mm-hmm. we have had conversations with people about that before. I mean, you're obviously here with a baby yeah. today. Yes. How do you manage that? And what do you say to people who are like, I don't know how I can balance my priorities? I mean, it, it is a challenge, especially this baby is fussy. But, you know, you just kind of do it and roll with the punches. People are pretty understanding. It's just you do the best you can. And I have support at home. You know, I, I have things that make it possible for me in a way that it's not possible for other people. And that's totally fine. I think everybody needs to find what works for them. You can send text messages to get out the vote and register people to vote from home. That's something that you can do on your laptop while your baby is, is like napping on your boob, you know. So there's the, everybody can do something. you got to find what is possible and what feels right to you. Now 